Hello. This is episode 110 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast, coming to you from deep within capitalist society. I'm Andrew Kleiman, your co-host. This episode's main segment is the continuation and conclusion of a conversation between Teresa Henry and me, recorded on January 20. It's on value and labor relations in capitalism and socialism, especially a 1943 article in which the Russian Stalinists revised the so-called law of value. Teresa and I get into why the law of value is specifically capitalist. We talk about differences between Marx's conception and the Stalinist conception of directly and indirectly social labor. We get into the article's claim that distribution according to labor prevailed in the USSR. And we talk about the harm that's caused when no effort is made to resolve theoretical and interpretive disputes. Please also do listen to part one of our discussion in episode 109, where we talked about what the Russians revised, the direct role that Stalin played in the revisions, the debate between Raya Dunyevskaya and pro-Stalinist economists regarding the article and its claims, and the significance of the revisions at the time for Russian society and for theory, and the continuing significance of the revisions today. But before that main segment in this episode's current events segment, regular co-host Gabriel Donnelly and I will be discussing whether Donald Trump will be able to establish a dictatorship in the United States if indeed he does become president again in one way or another. Gabriel and I recorded the conversation on February 4, and we focus on two recent pieces about the topic that were published in Politico. Please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, the website of Marxist Humanist Initiative, to listen to past episodes of this podcast series, to learn more about the issues discussed in them, to post comments, and to provide Radio Free Humanity with much-needed donations. This podcast series is sponsored and hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, but the views expressed by hosts and by guests, these views are our own. They don't necessarily reflect the views or positions of MHI. I want to announce right now an upcoming meeting of Marxist Humanist Initiative, uh, which will be open to the public, take place on Zoom on Sunday, February 18, from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be discussing the Memphis Sanitation Workers' Strike of 1968, the Black Liberation Movement, and union drives today. If you'd like to participate, please do contact Marxist Humanist Initiative and ask to be invited. You'll need to do so right away. Tell us a little bit about why you're interested in MHI and are asking to participate in the meeting. Next up, Gabriel Donnelly and I on whether Donald Trump will be able to establish a dictatorship if he does become U.S. president again. Hello, everyone out there in podcast listener land. It's Sunday, February the 4th, as we record this. And it is myself, Gabriel Donnelly, the Marxist humanist Ed McMahon, or Ed McBoy, I suppose in my case. And I'm here with Andrew Kleiman, as usual, for our current events discussion. What we're going to be talking about today is an article published a week ago in Politico by Astley. Aydin Taspas, who is a former journalist from Turkey, and the title is Trump Can't Be Dictator on Day One, or in a second term, Here's Why. The basic thrust of the article is that a lot of people are terrified that if Trump does get a second term by hook or by crook, he would turn America into a dictatorship. People are not wrong to worry. The U.S. is not immune to populism, which morphs into authoritarianism. But what she says is building a dictatorship takes a long time. So we don't need to panic. Four years is not going to be enough time. What Trump would need to turn the U.S. into a 
dictatorship is complete control of the news media. That's not going to happen in a four-year time slot, she says. He's going to need a judiciary that is completely loyal to him, and that is not something that can happen in four years, she says. And he's going to need to quell the unrest that's going to be centered in the cities. The population of the cities, you know, big city mayors, governors of blue states, and all of that. And she's drawing on her personal experience from Turkey, where Erdogan is basically established dictatorship. She refers frequently to Hungary and Orban, somewhat to Poland, and so forth. So she cautions at the end that she's not saying there's no reason to worry. She says no one should take democracy for granted. There's plenty to fear. Even if Trump does not turn himself into a full-on dictator, he can do a lot of damage if he wants to, and we know that he does. So resistance is necessary, and it will emerge at every level of civic life. But the longer we wait, it's going to be harder and use up more and more energy. So her message is don't panic, but organize. So that's kind of like Joe Hill, except it's don't panic instead of don't mourn. And the most successful method of fighting a creeping authoritarianism, she says, is alliance building and effective opposition, preferably before the election. So that is my summary. What did you think of the article? What do you think of the issue? I'm frustrated by this level of conversation about Trump, the anti-democratic and damaging tendencies of Trumpism as being checklist checking. It, does it quite fit the boundaries of fascism? Does it quite fit the boundaries of forming dictatorship? You know, we can have those discussions, but they often really seem academic. And I think that Aydin Tespas's experience in Turkey, which is mentioned, you know, an experienced repression of the media as a journalist, it colors the perspective where it's coming from. One of the three sources of resistance that she discusses, mainly being journalism and media, the judiciary and cities. And it misses a perspective that is experienced by the people in Turkey, Poland, or Hungary, and will be experienced by the people here and have been by the experience of people here in America, of regular people who have to live through these regimes. We've seen already what a presidential administration, a trumpet to him, looks like and how it can just completely shift the discourse of this country and cause lasting damage. I mean, we can only look at the case of immigration, where a lot of what he's done has yet to be scaled back, if it ever will be. He's so shifted the conversation on it that even a lot of Democrats now are willing to concede to what he set in course. You know, And just imagine, even without dictatorial powers, how much worse he can do if he gets in again. I agree with what you're saying. This is the way that the political scientists and the journalists tend to operate with rigid distinctions between things that are not so rigid. Let's say he's not 100% dictator within four years. He's a 80% dictator that can do 70% as much damage as 100% dictator. Like, what the hell's the diff, right? But another thing that struck me while reading this was the complete absence of reference to Germany in the 1930s. Because in Germany in the 1930s, things moved very, very quickly. Hitler was appointed chancellor of a coalition government where there was not a Nazi majority in January of 33. In February, they engineered the Reichstag fire or something happened, but the Reichstag fire was used as an excuse to turn the country into dictatorship. By March, in effect, Hitler was operating as a dictator. Only the Nazi party was allowed. In April, the Communist Party was banned. In May, the Socialists were banned. The unions were banned. 
and the rest is unfortunately history. That's just recounting the period from January to May of 1933. Things can move very rapidly, and you could say, oh, there's this check and balance, and these people stand in the way. But that's just the experience of some countries recently, Turkey, Hungary, and so forth. Now, people will say, yeah, but the U.S. isn't Nazi Germany. Yes, the U.S. is not Nazi Germany. It's also not Hungary. It's also not Poland. It's not Turkey, and so forth. I have a lot of doubt about how much we can learn from history in terms of these are the parameters of what can happen and nothing can happen outside that box. Even if that were true, that fascism takes a long time, dictatorship a long time, even if it were 100% true that that's been the case in the past, I don't see any reason to be confident that's got to be the case in the future. There was another thing that wasn't mentioned that struck me too, which was the Insurrection Act. Because we now know from a lot of court documents and the proceedings in Georgia and elsewhere that a big part of the Trump administration's plan to retain power after January 6th was to incite resistance on a city-based level or other sorts of resistance and to use that as an excuse to hold on to power. That was the plan. And the article mentions the military coup in Turkey, which Erdogan used to secure executive power. And we know and we've seen already, Trump already tried to use situations of crisis incited by him to seize power through extraordinary means. And there was a, an op-ed a couple months ago, I'm not sure if you saw it, Andrew, in the New York Times about the Insurrection Act that said, it's time to get rid of it, not just because of Trump, but because it is anti-democratic and any president having the ability to do it is bad for the democracy. And that's the kind of way I think we should be thinking about this fight is that the real positive act of fight against Trumpism has to be one about not just preserving what we have right now, because so much damage has been done to it already, but expanding democracy and making it more legitimate, getting more people excited about it so it's something worth defending. Along the lines of what you're saying about what will energize people to fight, two days before this article, there was another piece in Politico by Michael Schaefer on the 26th of January. He wrote under the title, Trump could come back, hashtag resistance might not. And the whole idea here is in 2017, Trump was met by the Women's March. There was a tremendous amount of resistance, but people can be burned out. They can also say, we tried and it wasn't enough, and we failed. Or they could say, the first four years we got through it, we can get through the second four years without really realizing the situation can be markedly different because the Trumpites have all of their ducks in the row with Project 2020-25 and so forth. So if people are just sort of like, oh, well, we got to keep fighting, that could be extremely demoralizing and it might not work. There's reasons to get worried. It's not good for people. Just organize. Same exact note as um, Aiden Taspas is here. It doesn't even really tell you to organize for what. It just says, yeah, good luck, organize. It's just frustrating to see that that's still where we're at. Obviously, organization is needed, but I mean, what kind of organization and to do what? One of the more heartening things that I read was in this Michael Schaefer piece where he's quoting Ian Basson, who's a pro-democracy activist, and there are people talking about what to do if Trump does manage to take power a second time, but in whispers and without sharing strategy. You know, a bit of caution is welcome here. And Basson says the Trumpites would try to scare everybody by scapegoating and persecuting a few key people, then scare the hell out of everybody else. So it's crucial that those figures who are initially targeted not only survive that targeting, but personally thrive, that they're physically protected and secure, their livelihoods are protected, and that their families are protected. And ideally, the fact that they've been singled out and targeted causes people to rally to their side in defense. 
So I think that that's all good. We're getting just a bit of the strategy of some people, and that's good. The problem is still, this is the liberal lines of organizing, the limitations of the liberal mindset. Everything is still reactive. Everything is still defensive. What we've seen with Trump and the Trumpites again and again and again is they just keep pushing so they don't get what they want here. They try it again there. They try something slightly different. What they need to do is suffer serious defeats, not just be held back from accomplishing harm. They need to be crushed, and we need to build a resistance that is motivated to crush them and to do away with this horror, this danger once and for all. There is, I think, among a good deal of the population, a will to really end this once and for all, but the liberals are not going to go there. And it's because there are people on the fence and they don't want to alienate this part of the population. You can't stop something like MAGA just by holding the line. No, you need a positive program and go forward. This episode's main segment will be coming up in just a few minutes, but first, a word from our sponsoring organization, Marxist Humanist Initiative. Uh, here is the Organizational Secretary of MHI, Angela Clard, talking about who we are. This is Angela Clard from Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI. MHI aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. Today, amidst many wars, climate crises, economic, social, and political crises, is a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we're faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism, extinguishing our right even to carry on such discussions. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism and not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organizations and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interest separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website and podcast to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as to espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as a way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Our collective is working to create an organization so formally rooted in its philosophy that it will not succumb to diversions that may arise from personal agendas and that will be capable of developing and concretizing the philosophy over the long haul, regardless of who its members may be. It is no simple matter to create a democratic organization that is at the same time 
effective and able to resist efforts to divert it from its goals. We are aware that Marx never achieved an organization based on his philosophy and that Donevskaya's organization disintegrated following her death. But we have made progress in this matter with our principles and bylaws and by recognizing that Marxist humanism cannot be carried on by chance or by individuals alone. An organization is needed in order to test and prove ideas. We invite all of you to join us in this discussion and our initiative. That was Andrew Clard, the Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization that sponsors this podcast series, talking about who we are. Let me announce again the next MHI meeting on Zoom on Sunday, February 18, from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's on the Memphis Sanitation Workers' Strike of 1968, the Black Liberation Movement, and Union Drives Today. If you'd like to participate, please contact Marxist Humanist Initiative, ask to be invited, and tell us a little bit about why you're interested in MHI. Next up is this episode's main segment, the second part of the discussion between Teresa Henry and me on value and labor relations in capitalism and socialism. One of the key things we're talking about right now is a revision to Marx's law of value and this pedagogical attempt to teach capital in a way that's like, oh, look, commodity production existed in the towns of Italy in the 14th century. So the law of value must have operated there. And if it operated before the moment of capitalist production, it can operate after. Look, it does operate after. This is a socialist society. It operates here. So this kind of like trans-historical teaching students to look for the so-called trans-historical quality of the law of value. It's meant to obscure that Marx himself conceived of the law of value as historically specific to capitalist production. Can you give us an overview of, of what Marx's interpretation of the law of value was and why he thought it only existed within the historic period of capitalist production? So first thing again is what value is, is abstract wealth. Keep in mind, value is abstract wealth. Now, if you look throughout history, that basically is very uncommon. If it exists at all, usually it doesn't. What's always existed are various different concrete forms of wealth. But there was originally no wealth in the abstract. You owned land, something concrete. You owned tools, something concrete. You owned your personal effects. Maybe you owned slaves, but not abstract wealth. So production then was production of concrete useful things or use values, the production of these useful things was not at the same time simultaneously the production of abstract wealth, production of value. But that's what it is today. You produce a car, but you're also producing value. You mine a diamond, the diamond's valuable, you're mining value, essentially. That's new historically. Even when there was like some exchange of useful things, and even when there's money, and money is clearly abstract wealth, you got a $1,000 in your savings account, that's not a concrete useful thing. It's valuable, but it's not a concrete useful thing. So prior to capitalism, you had some exchange of useful things. You had money in some cases, but you didn't have useful things that were also abstract wealth being produced. The things that were exchanged were just like what you had left over. You produced and you had more after providing for your own needs, your family's needs, whatever. So exchanges were of like these surpluses or exchanges took place for ceremonial reasons or, or whatever. So things were produced, some of them were exchanged, but they weren't produced for the purpose of being exchanged. They were produced for the purpose of use. You mentioned purpose before, that's all important here. What is the purpose of our production? Things were produced to meet needs for use. They weren't produced for the purpose of being exchanged. And because they weren't produced for the purpose of exchange, the production process wasn't affected by what might happen down the road when some of these things did get exchanged. 
and in particular the rates at which the things exchange or the prices that didn't affect production for instance let's say you're a peasant and you're producing a variety of goods for subsistence for yourself for your family and maybe you'll have some extra milk and you can exchange that extra milk for neighbors extra eggs there's going to be a rate of exchange of milk for eggs but that rate of exchange isn't going to affect your production which is already taking place it's not going to affect how you milk cows you're not going to give up milking cows because the rate of exchange is too low you don't get enough eggs you're not going to stop milking cows because no neighbor of yours wants your leftover milk so you could say the milk has a certain value in exchange um, but there's no law regulating what that value is i mean it all depends on how much milk you've got and how many eggs neighbor has or certain ceremonial rituals and practices and so forth okay what eventually happened in europe was that a greater and greater share of products were being exchanged and then in england you've got the enclosures the primitive accumulation so-called you had independent yeoman peasants they were driven off the land and so you didn't have subsistence farming anymore even basic foods now had to be acquired in exchange in the market and since these ex-peasants were driven off the land they couldn't provide for themselves any longer they had to exchange even their own ability to work labor power their labor power became a commodity and they had to buy food in the market and so Marx says put your finger on that that's the moment where capitalist production begins that's the new epoch of history when labor power itself becomes a commodity when people have to sell their ability to work because they've got no way of producing on their own. So what you've got now, and this is now capitalist production, is the great bulk of useful things are being produced for the purpose of being exchanged. And because that's the purpose, the value that these things are going to have in exchange becomes all important. And it does greatly affect production now, how production gets organized, what gets produced, and so on particular businesses now have to produce with utmost efficiency the goods they sell have a certain price in the market they don't control that and to turn a profit businesses then have to keep their production costs below that price otherwise they don't get any profit but to keep the production costs below that market determined price that requires efficiency so now there is a law that regulates what the value of a thing is and it's a law based on efficiency. And the law is that only labor that's socially necessary of average efficiency adds to a thing's value. You work, but you do more labor than what's necessary on average in society, work longer than is needed to actually produce the thing. On average, that additional labor doesn't create additional value. That's the law. So that's why the law of value does not operate prior to capitalism but only in capitalism. But what about after capitalism? Here again, we got to go back to what the concepts are, what Marx meant by socialism and communism, both the lower phase and the higher phase of communism. What he meant by this is a society in which production is communal, the means of production, you know, tools, equipment, supplies, the means of production are collectively owned and controlled. Uh, there's a society without social classes and labor is directly social it doesn't have to create value in order to qualify as a contribution to society so obviously there's no law of value that regulates production in this case because there's no value at all and people will once again be producing just concrete useful things for needs for themselves and for others only now the others are not just their immediate family or whatever now it's the members of society as a whole for whom people be producing. That's very helpful. I want to see if I can wrap my head around all of that. So you're saying before capitalist production, people produced things they needed. Maybe there was some excess. Those excess things would be traded for other things in the community that were produced. You use the example of milk and eggs. Here, there's no law regulating that exchange because the things themselves aren't produced 
for the purpose of being exchanged. So when the peasant goes out to collect the eggs in the chicken coop or to milk the cow, he's not going, I got to get 12 eggs out of the coop today. I got to get four liters of milk out of the cows today because that's what I need to exchange for X, Y, and Z. He's going to the cow or to the chicken to get things for his himself and his family to eat. If there's leftovers, they're exchanged. There's nothing other than the fact that they're leftovers guiding that exchange. There's no consistent principle stating these things will be exchanged for this reason. And then the other part. Even more important than reason is the amounts. How much of this for how much of that? There's no law regulating that. So the law of value regulates purpose of production and exchange, but also the value of the amounts that can be exchanged for each other. The rates at which they exchange, how much milk you give up to get a certain number of eggs, or how much milk you give up to get $10 in return. The prices, in other words. Right. And then when labor power itself becomes a commodity, the law of value stipulates that labor that goes over what it takes on average to produce something doesn't add value. If one firm is producing slower than the other firm, that labor time that goes over what an average time it takes to produce a commodity doesn't mean that there's more value in that product. There's not more value in the product because it's gone over the socially necessary labor time. Well, yeah, but it's not a stipulation. It's not just some arbitrary point of theory. It's a way of summarizing and understanding the structure of the actual social relation. And the actual social relation is, again, there's a price in the market. Let's say producing linen and produce a bolt of linen. That bolt of linen has a certain price in the market. And that bolt of linen requires, on average, X amount of labor to produce it. And you're working with outmoded equipment, or you got workers who are ill-trained or old or whatever, you have produced this bolt of linen, but on average, it only requires X amount of labor. You have produced it with X plus Y plus Z, or we say Z here. Does that extra labor create extra value? No. You can't raise the price of your product above the market price just because you got bad equipment and slow workers and whatever. No, it's got a market price. So all of that extra labor is just a waste. It's not value creating. Yes, it's a law, but the law doesn't come down from heaven. The law is a way of understanding the structure of the social relation. Right. It must be so in capitalist production, not in the sense that someone legislated it or ordained it into existence. This is what's happening in capitalist production, not along the sense of a piece of legislation or like a, someone said should be this way. Generally, not everybody uses the term law, like law of physics or law of economics. Not everybody uses it the same way. But in general, what I think Marx meant by a law, and I think in this case, is that the law is what explains the phenomena. For instance, why do inefficient producers suffer? Because they're producing not with the least average efficiency. The amount of actual labor that they put in to produce a product is more than the social average. So that explains the phenomenon of why they suffer. Okay, that makes sense to me. And the final thing I wanted to try to understand a bit deeper and better is this concept that you mentioned near the end of your explanation of Marx's law of value, the concept of directly social labor as opposed to indirectly social labor. So you talk about how in Marx's view, in a socialist or communist society, in both phases, the lower phase and the higher phase of communist production, there is no production of value. Labor is directly social. The Soviet article 
does something funny with these concepts too, where they say labor is directly social, even though the production of value still exists. They say this is because all labor finds social recognition. Why is this not what Marx meant by directly social labor? Uh, so this finding social recognition is a fancy way of saying that the performance of labor is planned and any labor activity falls within the plan and plan is social. So the labor is directly social. And in particular, they pointed to the fact that in market society, Western capitalism, you can do labor, but it doesn't qualify as social labor. It doesn't count if the product you produce doesn't get sold. And they said, it doesn't matter in the USSR. So a lot of stuff was not produced for sale in the market. But even if it was, even if it's produced and it later doesn't get sold, labor is considered social labor. The workers would be paid and all of this. So the labor is directly social. The fact is that this is just not what Marx meant when he talked about directly social labor and its opposite, indirectly social labor. Because labor in capitalism is social, Marx's point is it's not directly social in capitalism or immediately social. To be social labor in capitalism, an act of labor doing some work, has to satisfy certain conditions first. And only if it satisfies those conditions will it qualify as social labor, a contribution to society. Above all, as I was talking about, efficiency matters. That's really important under capitalism, turning an act of private labor into social labor. Any labor expended on the production of something that's in excess of the average amount that's required, that doesn't qualify as social labor, doesn't add additional value. Marx says in socialism, Lower phase of communism, higher phase of communism, both of them. In socialism, all labor will be directly or immediately social. It won't have to satisfy any additional conditions before it qualifies as social labor, contribution to society. So you get two people, they work equal amounts of time, they work equally hard. They will be making equal contributions, performing equal amounts of labor, social labor, even though one produces double the amount of stuff than the other or performs more skilled tasks or produces something that's more in demand or whatever. So satisfying or not satisfying those additional conditions is not going to matter, not at least for the purpose of assessing individuals' contributions. You did this amount of work, that's your contribution, full stop. That was Marx's conception. Now, Let's compare that with what the Russian article said about these conditions. It was discussing the question, how can we measure labor? And then it answered, quote, it might seem that the simplest way out is to measure labor in hours or days in what Marx called the natural measure of labor. But the difficulty is that the labor of the citizens of a socialist society is not qualitatively uniform went into there's a variety of different skill levels one occupation's better equipped technically you know better machinery than so forth than another so quote the hour or day of work of one worker is not equal to the hour or day of another as a result of this the measure of labor in a socialist society can be calculated only on the basis of the law of value. The calculation and comparison of the various kinds of labor are not realized directly, not realized directly by means of the natural measure of labor, labor time, but indirectly by means of counting and comparison of the products of labor of commodities. Close quote. Think about that. Calculation of labor is not realized directly in terms of the amount of labor time, but indirectly on the basis of value. What's being said here is one worker's labor hour is not equal to another's. And because of that, an hour of labor does not directly qualify as an hour of social labor. The amount of social labor that a worker performs instead depends on the quantity of the products that they produce and the value of the products that they produce. So value here is the intermediary that turns an hour of actual labor into some amount of social labor. So what the Russians are saying 
in this article is that labor was not directly social in the sense that Marx used the term. You do an hour of work, it doesn't count as an hour of social labor. Other things have to be satisfied. This doctrine of the Russians also has really important implications for income distribution. Russians say that in the USSR and in socialism, the initial phase of communism, there's distribution according to labor. This is the point we talked about that Leo Rogan endorsed what they said. We got distribution according to labor in Russia. This is a feature of socialism, but it's really an Orwellian concept of labor. You receive in accordance with how much labor you do, but how much labor you do isn't just a matter of how much time you work and how hard you work. All labor is equal, but some labor is more equal than others. That's why this is Orwellian, right? Let me quote again. This is a direct quote. The hour or day of work of one worker is not equal to the hour or day of another. So as Dunyevskaya notes in her commentary, distribution according to labor, what it really means here is distribution according to value. So if you work with more advanced technology, you create more value, and therefore you do supposedly more labor. If you work in a skilled job, you create more value. So therefore, supposedly you've done more labor. If you're part of the thin layer at the top, the intelligentsia, well, your contribution is especially valuable, right? So you've done more labor. This is just 1984. This is just Newspeak. Marx's understanding of income distribution in socialism, the initial phase of communism, was just completely different from this. He says, you got two people, they do the same amount of actual work, they work equally long and hard, they'll be entitled to the same amount of income from work. Amounts of value that they create won't matter. They won't be creating value at all. Abstract wealth value is not going to exist at all in the lower phase or the higher phase of communism. The amount of products that different individuals produce won't matter. Their contribution to society is going to be assessed on the basis of how much actual work they do and only that. And then the higher phase of communist society, the link between what somebody contributes and what they receive, that will finally be broken if we ever get there. People will contribute according to their ability, receive in accordance with their needs. Okay, that wasn't remotely similar to what was taking place in Russia, but the Russian article didn't claim that that was taking place. The point is that the article and the Stalinists in general said that the USSR had achieved socialism, the lower phase of communist society. Marx's conception of what qualified as social labor in the lower phase and his conception of distribution in the lower phase, that was also not remotely similar to what was taking place in Russia. So for Marx, directly social labor means, for example, one hour of labor time equals one hour of labor time. And in the Soviet article, they're saying directly social labor is one hour of labor time equals some amount of value depending on how important your job is, how skilled you are at it, how long it takes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then that value is then equal to some quantity of labor. The mediation is still value, where there is no such mediation in Marx's concept of directly social labor. So, Absolutely, yeah. So you work for an hour because of the value and the amount of what you produce. That's seven hours of social labor. Somebody else works for an hour, same intensity, but because of the value and the amount that they produce, it's 15 minutes of social labor. So all labor is equal, but some labor is more equal than others. It's just right out of animal form. So as a cook, maybe my one hour of labor is, is 15 minutes, but as a pr professor of economics, one hour of your labor is one hour. Yeah. And Comrade Stalin and Comrade Molotov, and they do a lot of very valuable social labor. So they, they, they do a lot of labor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just... it's. That, that distribution according to labor, sure. Yeah. So just finally on this, when they say distribution according to labor, Danievskaya says this really means distribution according to value because the labor in question, when we say distribution to labor, is not that concrete labor, that one hour of labor time. It's the labor that is a result of this mediation of value. It's not distribution to exactly the amount of 
work you did. It's distribution to how much that work is worth given all these other factors. Is that correct? Absolutely. So that's why it's distribution according to value. It's about how much things are worth. What they call labor is not labor at all. If you work an hour and I work an hour at equal intensity, we both do the same amount of labor. End of story. You haven't done seven hours of labor. I haven't done 15 minutes of labor. We've both done an hour of labor. They're just calling labor what's not labor. And what's labor, they're calling not labor. They're saying how much value you create determines how much work you've done or how much labor you perform. It's nuts. It reflects the relations of capitalism in general. We could get into that and how it does that. The fact of the matter is really dealing in new speak here. Labor is value, value is labor, war is peace, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, freedom is slavery, um, ignorance is strength. Look around you, use your heads. There's no such thing as misinterpretation. We've always been at war with Eurasia. <laughs> All right, this is a sneaky trick that they're doing. They've changed the meaning of socialism. They've changed the meaning, they've revised the law of value. They've changed the meaning of directly social labor. But they do another sneaky trick, and this is conflating two different uses of the word value in Marx's writings to try to suggest that Marx is saying the law of value operates in a socialist society. So I have two quotations from the under the banner of Marxism article. The first is from the critique of the Goethe program, and the quote is, here, obviously, the same principle prevails at that which regulates exchange of commodities so far as this exchange is of equal values, end quote. And the second quote is from Capital Volume 3, and it reads, in the second place, after the abolition of capitalist production, but with social production still in vogue, the determination of value continues to prevail in such a way that the regulation of labor time and the distribution of labor amongst the various groups of production. Also, the keeping of accounts in connection with this becomes more essential than ever, end quote. I can see how someone would read these quotes and come to the conclusion, it does kind of seem like Marx is saying that there's still value in a socialist society. But Dunyevskaya says in her response to the pro-Soviet economist, not who wrote the original article, but that responded to her translation. She says to them in her rejoinder that Marx is using the word value here, not in the sense as he's referring to the law of value, the concept of value or, or surplus value, but she says in the general or descriptive sense. So how is the general or descriptive use of the word value differ from Marx's concept of value in the law of value. I was reading this when I first read the Soviet article. I was like, oh, wow. On first glance, I was like, these, these quotes are troublesome. But then I read them again and was like, I don't think that he's using the concept of value as in like abstract wealth. It seems like he's using word value here as in the general sense that we say valuable. Like that was a very valuable conversation we just had. So these are different uses of the term value. You seem to have an additional interpretation of what Marx was doing here with the, the word value. Can you discuss that a little bit? You got two different quotes here. The first one is from the critique of the Gotha program. The second is from volume three of Capital. They're very different from each other. By far, the more important quotation is the one in the Critique of the Gotha Program. And in this article that I wrote on what the Critique of the Gotha Program says about capitalism versus communism, I analyzed that passage. I did a pretty thorough analysis of that passage. Can't repeat the whole thing here. But the upshot is the Russian article claimed that the passage envisions a role for the law of value in the initial phase of communism. That's just simply preposterous. Read what I wrote. I think it'll become clear that the passage says the opposite's the case once it's analyzed correctly. I mean, Russian article, they just quote two substantially long paragraphs and say, look, Marx said there's a role for the law of value under socialism. 
no analysis of the content of the paragraphs. I read those paragraphs. I analyze them. I study them very carefully. They don't say that at all. Okay, but let's get to this other quote from volume three of Capital. Duniskaya says it's using the term determination of value in a general or descriptive sense. What she means is he's just referring to evaluation, assessing the, you know, the value of something. Let me give you another example. Somebody might say, okay, we want citizens to be more informed and engaged. So we should determine the value of civics classes that we conduct. Determining the value of the civics classes doesn't have anything to do with what determination of value means in economics. So that's how she interpreted it. That's not implausible, uh, but I'm not sure at all that that's what Marx intended. Another plausible interpretation is that this was just a slip of the pen. Marx may have not determination of value, but determination of time. The reason I say this is in the Grundrisse, which Marx wrote in 1857-58, there's a very similar passage to this. And Marx wrote there, quote, on the basis of communal production, communal production, the determination of time remains, of course, essential. So he said determination of time, not determination of value. Economy of time, along with the planned distribution of labor time, remains the first economic law on the basis of communal production. However, he says, this is essentially different from a measurement of exchange values by labor time. So he's saying determination of time, but that's not the same thing as determination value. And there's another plausible interpretation is that I think it's plausible. What he meant is that the regulation of labor time and the distribution of social labor under capitalism, they're bound up with the determination of value. And those things, regulation of labor time and distribution of social labor, those things will continue to exist once capitalist production is abolished, even though there won't be any determination of value. In any case, the plausible interpretations have nothing to do with what the Russian article said. What it did, I think, is utterly disgraceful. It just cherry-picked a single sentence and gives it a very implausible interpretation. Why is it implausible? Well, it flatly contradicts what Marx said, what Engels said about the abolition of value and value relations again and again and again. So it's entirely out of context. And that way of reading, cherry picking out of context, it's contrary to all accepted norms of interpretation. The task of an exegetical interpretation where you're trying to get at the, the author's meaning is you're trying to make the text make sense in the context of the whole. And in this case, it's the whole of Marx's theory. The article's doing the opposite. It lifts one sentence from an unpublished manuscript out of that entire context. It ignores the massive amount of textual evidence that Marx's view was the opposite of what it was claiming. I talked about Stalin's hostile attitude to Marxian theory and to theory in general. This is another example of a hostility to Marxian thought and to theory in general. I think that's a really good point. Both of your interpretations make sense to me. I had a similar reaction as Donnie Sky, but I do see how your interpretations would make sense. I mean, you give evidence about a similar sentence in the Grand Rissa, which shows you're trying to understand what Marx is meaning in the context of his larger argument. And if you reread the quote from Capital Volume 3 with determination of time instead of the determination of value, it seems like he's talking about, we'll have to calculate labor time because that will be the measure of, of distribution. One, one hour will equal one hour and we'll need to. Yeah, not only distribution, but also the allocation of labor in society. It's like, well, we want this, we want that. This takes so much labor, that takes so much labor. And we, we need to not put too much labor over here and too little over there. It's this economizing on time will continue to be important, but that has nothing to do with you know value, not as such. And the, the final point you made about this dis disgraceful, anti-philosophical, anti-theoretical added to Marx, you single out Stalin and, and the Stalinists as having a hostility to Marxist theory and a theory in general. But again, just like when we were talking about 
Stalin's comments to the economists and not having to consult Marx when you're doing Marxist theory. attack more than a hint of this hostility to, to theory in general in the contemporary left where people are willing or striving to go against norms of interpretation who think that exegetical interpretation is not necessary or desirable. It leads to just like proliferation of implausible interpretations and people don't seem to care whether the interpretations are plausible or not. If they work and if they sound good, that's the standard. The truth content is no longer the standard. It's how they look and how they they feel and if they satisfy the goals that were set out before the theory was developed. Or even, you know, this will help me in my career. I'll have something to say, something that's new. Nobody wants to read. Nobody wants to publish what's already been said, even though it's right. It's not popular. All kinds of evil motives. Or we have to preserve debate. We can't ever resolve any controversy because then we would not be preserving debate. What would historical materialism then be publishing if it didn't drag on controversies more and more and more so nothing ever gets settled so everybody can come up with their new twist and so forth and make their career on that basis? Big publishing company, Brill, would want to publish and they want to publish slop and libraries are going to take this journal. Who's being hurt? that's just the way things are, right? So it's a very bad situation. I especially think our goal is to preserve debate rather than resolve contradictions and controversies harmful. I think especially harmful for people who are trying to enter the Marxist left that don't have academic training, who come maybe come out of grassroots activist circles who are dissatisfied with what they've seen there and they're looking for bigger ideas, more total universal ideas, and then they find Marxism. And but what they find is one million different Marxisms and no sense whatsoever to this number will reduce down to a couple or, or one definitive interpretation. And this is just incredibly disorienting. Like I'm someone who has been reading Marxist theory for my entire adult life and in my teenage years. I'm not new to it. I'm no master, but I'm not new to it. And I still find it incredibly disorienting where you read something and then you can go on to the next website, or maybe you don't even have to go to the next website. You can you can go on Jacobin and you can read an article that says one thing, and then you can read the next article that says the exact opposite thing. And there's no sense of a a result to this controversy. Or for example, I read this Canadian publication where there was a debate between two people that call themselves socialist humanists about Ukraine, and they had opposing viewpoints, but nothing was resolved at the end. There was this one guy had one point, the other guy had another set of points. They disagreed with each other. They both went their separate ways. The publication didn't write any editorial comment or anything saying that... (laughs) These, these points were resolved, it's just argument, and then nothing changes. And then there's just more, more interpretations, more disagreements, more debate. I think it's super disorienting for people who want to try to get a sense of Marxist theory and try to get a sense of how it relates to their lives and the, the movements they're involved in and people who are looking for truth. It's terrible. I want to clarify, because this is another matter where people are, you know, our enemies are going to twist what we say even if we're very careful, but all we can do is be maximally careful. The problem is not that there are a variety of views published. I think it's perfectly fine, good, that you've got publication that has different perspectives, even opposing points of view, and and it publishes them, and they can call themselves socialist humanists, they can call themselves whatever. The point is that these opposites just sit there in a kind of peaceful coexistence. Differences don't get resolved. That is the problem, is differences don't get resolved. There's not even an effort to resolve them. As the years go by, this piles up. The problem gets worse and worse and worse. You get more interpretations, more theories, more and more unresolved differences. In a situation like this, there cannot be progress. Why not? This is something that Thomas Kuhn, the famous philosopher of science, emphasized in his famous book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. In a situation like this, where these differences don't get resolved, you're preventing progress. 
Why? Well, another thing he emphasized is this is self-evident. Once you think about it in a second, it's obvious that this is preventing progress. In a scholarly community, whether you think of Marxian scholarship or physics or chemistry, whatever it might be, in a scholarly community, progress is, it simply is the resolution of controversy. Determine that some claims, some ideas should be rejected. They're false, they're not properly formulated, they're consistent with other things, you know, so forth. Rejecting them, that is progress, that is moving forward. Physics, you had Aristotle's theory of motion. That eventually got rejected after a thousand years. That was progress. Several hundred years after that, Newton's theory of motion got rejected. More progress. On the other hand, you've got a scholarly community. It isn't testing claims and ideas to the point where it discards those that prove to be false or whatever. That lack of resolution, that simply is the absence of progress. And I don't think everything has to be resolved one way or another. If you think chocolate ice cream is best, think vanilla is best, somebody else thinks strawberry is best, there's no problem there. Why? Because there's no contradiction between these things. It's entirely possible that for you, chocolate's best. For me, vanilla's best. For somebody else, strawberry. There's a lot of things that aren't like that. Aristotle's, Newton's, Einstein's, theories of motion, they can't all be correct. They do contradict one another. The claim that value exists in what Marx called socialism, the claim that value doesn't exist in what Marx called socialism, these claims contradict one another. They can't both be, be right. So the controversy does need to be resolved or there's not going to be any progress. And then there's the other matter about Marx in particular, when you get controversies regarding what his theories were, and they never get resolved, and there's no will to resolve them. The outcome is inevitably a situation in which the meaning of Marx's writings could be anything. It could mean this, it could mean that, it could mean the other thing, just as you were saying. It means this to me, it means that to you, it means that to the Jacobin, it means this to that socialist humanist. But if Marx's writings, if Marx's theories could mean anything, then they mean nothing, nothing determinate in any case. So when you get these unresolved controversies that persist and proliferate, it causes Marx to do a disappearing act. That's the upshot of all of this. And you have one of the sharpest minds the radical movement has ever had, and he labors over this stuff decade after decade after decade, and then it means nothing because of how people are treating it, because of how regimes are like treating it. I think it's absolutely tragic. The distinction you made is important, and it shines a light on what Marxist humanists are trying to do. So we're not trying to do the left unity thing where we're saying, no, 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 don't talk about that issue. It's alienating. We have to unify on the broadest, lowest common denominator possible. We're not saying that. We're also not saying like the Stalinists or the Trotskyists or the Maoists that our political line is the only correct one and any deviation from this line is it revisionism and a deviation from true Marxism. And what we're saying is, yes, disagreement is good. Theory can't develop without criticism, without the checking of ideas, without the discussion of ideas, without disagreements, frankly. But point of disagreeing with someone should be towards finding the truth of the matter and resolving the contradiction or the controversy around the subject. So the disagreement is not a virtue in and of itself. It's method to get towards truth because truth is the goal. So we can't have this left unity thing where we agree to not talk about things because then those things are left shrouded in mystery and distortion and untruth. We can't have just the dogmatic obedience to a line because what if the line is wrong? We'll never know. And we're making horrible theoretical, moral, and strategic missteps all the time. So we have to have this disagreement, but we can't have this disagreement that is its own end. And that just its goal is the proliferation of interpretations and the diversity of, of positions. The end has to be truth, comprehension of the situation, concrete theory that can in, inform 
our attempts to transform society. Yeah, I think very important what you're saying and, and what you said a bit earlier came into the movement and you're not an academic. This is not a career choice for you to discuss these matters. There's a lot of people who are in a very different situation. They're going to be listening to this and they're going to be like rolling their eyes and, oh, you're so naive. Look, this is how the game is played. And they've kind of known their whole life or they get into it and they bust out very quickly. Yeah, this is a game. This is how the game is played. This is, you know, how one gets a job, how one advances and so forth. This is just how the game is played. So that's the way it is. The problem comes when there are people like you coming into radical movement, looking for answers that are correct, that are tested, that have stood the test of time. They're not made privy to the idea that this is just a game. And they don't want just a game. They know why it shouldn't be just a game for the reasons that you said. That's who is done a disservice above all. Okay. These these people are taking resources, wasting time, dominating, you know, radical discourse and crowding out what genuine people who genuinely want social change want when they look for ideas and, and listen for them. So I think that's extremely important you're raising because, yeah, there are people who know this is all a game and so forth and so on, but why why should this be the case? Why should this be dominating the discourse? And why should the people who are looking for something better be so ill-served? Exactly. It's not a game to the people who it's not a game for. You know, the Marxist theory is not a game for the worker who doesn't want to be exploited anymore or for the woman who just got her reproductive rights taken away or the immigrant who's facing deportation or the person who is facing bombardment campaigns constantly. It's not a game. And so I just think it's absolutely it's so condescending and it's horrible for people to to treat such an important thing like theory or philosophy as trivial. It's, yeah, it's a tragedy, as you said. Yeah, and it's the academics who do it, and it's, as you said, the big tent left, left unity people. Thank you so much for your time and for having me on and your thoughtful responses. Well, thank you so much for your contributions. Your input was very helpful. Even when you were just agreeing with me, you were saying things your way. And I think it's helpful to people to hear the ideas stated one way and then the same ideas stated a different way. This has been episode 110 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast from deep within capitalist society. Thanks for listening. Please visit MHI's website, MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, to listen to other episodes, to learn more about the issues we discuss, to post comments, and to donate to this podcast series. Goodbye.